This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at Upcase.com. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Pete Hunt. Hey, Pete. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. So you, uh, I see that you are, as of recently, fun employed. I am, yeah. This is, um, it's been going on for a couple of weeks now. Okay. Can you get into a little more detail? Like, you know, what, do you have a plan? Or are you just kind of enjoying the free time? Like, what's, what's going on in your mind? Oh, I mean, I, I left Facebook on a Friday and on the Monday I was, actually it was on a Sunday, I was just like aggressively writing code. Oh, wow. Yeah. Normally people take a little bit of a break because they know, you know, they're going into a startup environment and they're going to be working really hard not taking a vacation for like the next two years. Mm-hmm. I'm too ignorant to understand that. So I just jumped right in. Okay. So this is this is your own idea of something that you're working on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I started putting together a team. Um, I kind of came up with, with a, a concept. And then we're just kind of starting to execute on it, which is pretty cool. We're basically working on abuse prevention systems. So you know, fighting spam and abuse and, and compromised accounts and those types of things and offering that up as a service for people to plug into. Were you doing something similar at Facebook? when you No, nope, not at all. Okay. I integrated with this um, with a similar system at Facebook before, and I kind of saw the the value that it brought. Mm-hmm. But I never actually worked directly on the system before. Gotcha, cool. So that just just felt like the right direction for you. It seemed like an opportunity. Yeah, it's a really interesting problem, and it's got a lot of value for for lots of, of companies. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's something worth pursuing, and especially kind of given the press today about you know like Jennifer Lawrence had her account hacked on iCloud, right? And and there's all sorts of kind of security and and kind of other stuff in the universe around abuse Mm -hmm. so i think there's a lot of problems worth solving yeah it sounds like there might be some like fun like machine learning stuff in there probably somewhere um yeah yeah there is it's a controversial kind of thing though because everybody talks about machine learning as being this kind of way to solve these problems and and it is a great way to solve these problems but you can get really far with rules just kind of manually kind of thinking about what your policies are going to be and more importantly, you can actually explain what those are doing as opposed to some ML models are a little bit more difficult to kind of figure out why they're actually firing. Yeah. So as with any problem, it's a mix of all the different techniques and figuring out what are the highest leverage things to do first and later. Right. And can you start with something simple that you understand and works and then add the complexity later? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. So uh, what were you working on at Facebook when you left? Well, when I left, I was the engineering manager on um, Instagram business tools. Well, Instagram web in general, which is owns everything on, on Instagram.com from the stuff that you see going there in a web browser on your desktop or mobile device, all the way to kind of these, these tools that big brands would use. And we had announced them kind of right before I left. Mm-hmm. And these are our tools for, for getting insights into your, your Instagram account, what it's doing. For advertisers, it's insights into how your ads are performing um, and, you know, tools for creating ads. And it's, it's the, the first step in like kind of a, a broader plan to you know, the, the broader like, Make money. strategy, basically. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And you also um, were one of the creators or the creator, I'm not sure, of React, React.js? Um, yeah. So I was definitely not the creator of, of React, but I was um, definitely involved really early. And so this is a, a JavaScript library at Facebook. Basically, the way that, that, that I got involved was I was tasked with building the Instagram.com web experience. Mm-hmm. And Due to some infrastructure um, constraints, we basically had to render it client side. Hmm. 
And so we're like, okay, we, so we're going to have to write a lot of JavaScript. And then we, we started poking around the company and asking what the latest and greatest way to write JavaScript was. And, you, you know, you get a bunch of different answers. But one of the answers that we got was like, hey, you know, we're trying out this new thing in, called React on a couple of basically on one project. Um, and we think there's a lot of promise there. You should go talk to the guy who's working on that. Mm-hmm. So I talked to Jordan, who was um, working on it at the time. And uh, we built a small feature on our web profiles with it, loved it, and then just kind of started writing everything with it. Mm-hmm. And before we knew what, what was happening, like all of Instagram.com was like one big React component, which was pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. So I, I'm somewhat familiar with React. I, I play with it a bit, and I've used uh, Ohm, which is uh, the Clojure script uh, wrapper around it. Mm-hmm. But could you sort of just give maybe a, a lay of the land, like the philosophy and, and sort of what the ref idea is there? So there, there's a number of different ways that you can go about talking about React. I like to bucket it because I think it's a, a pretty unique kind of thing, especially in the JavaScript world. Mm-hmm. So I like to, to think about it in kind of two separate silos. The first is the, is the design. Like, what do we want this thing to do? What are the ideas that, that differentiate React from other systems? And then the other silo is the implementation because I think the implementation is really, really good. Mm. and has some unique properties. Mm-hmm. So the basic design of React is kind of centered around one thing, which is this idea of immediate mode rendering. So... You have this render method that represents what you want your component to look like. And you, you write a, a couple of if statements, then your return value is this thing that looks kind of like markup. It describes the structure of your DOM. Mm-hmm. So there are opaque JavaScript objects that say, hey, I want a div, and inside of that div, I want a button, and I want an H1, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the secret sauce there is that most front-end libraries will have kind of two phases. They'll have the initial render phase, and then they'll have the update phase. Right. So you initially render your thing, and then your update phase basically can take a number of different code paths depending on what the update you want to perform is and what the current state of your UI is. Mm-hmm. What React does is React basically combines those two into one unifying concept called render. And so with React, you describe your component's kind of initial render state, and that's the only thing that you do. Mm-hmm. And what React will do is it'll call that method over and over again and transition between one render state to the other render state for you. So you actually don't have to write that render code yourself. Right. And once you have that key concept, and you know, this is interesting because like kind of for fun, I did a re-implementation of, of React and Objective-C, just kind of like it's not a real thing, but it's like was an exploratory programming thing. Yep. And once you have that one concept of like, hey, I'm getting rid of the update phase and I'm just kind of re-rendering over and over again, a lot of interesting techniques and principles fall out of that. So if you want to describe a UI that changes over time, Describing it as a state machine, is like a very explicit state machine, is, is a very easy way to do that. So um, another thing about React's design that works really well is, you know, the transitions over time are very explicit. Hmm. So if you want to figure out, you know, where are all my state transitions, you like get grep for the set state method, and those are where all your state transitions are. And hmm. that's where most of your bugs will be. Um, and then the final piece is that, again, what falls out of this is then you want to compose your bigger components out of smaller components. And so... Making it work like Legos where, you know, you can describe your property types, you can combine them together and they're kind of almost self-documenting. And once you know how to, to use one React component, you know how to use every React component. Just look at the docs. Mm-hmm. So those are aspects about the design that I think are pretty unique. Then the execution of the implementation, I think, is pretty awesome, too. So because the design is focused around kind of like very, very minimal mutable state and then kind of this immediate mode rendering, the implementation can do a lot of cool stuff. It has a lot of interesting you know, optimization heuristics in place uh, where it can say, hey, you know, it looks like 
we're transitioning from a, a profile page to a newsfeed page because we see the type of this component changing, the like actual class constructor mm-hmm. uh, or object constructor changing. So like let's skip our kind of checking of, of which fine-grained pieces of the UI changed and just like throw out the old one and just repaint the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because nine times out of ten, that's what you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably more than nine times out of ten, that's what you want. So um, that's pretty cool. The fact that React is completely backend agnostic and can render on the client or the server, pretty much any JavaScript environment, regardless of kind of whether the, the rendering backend is a browser DOM, a canvas, or like an HTML string is pretty cool. It feels like such a nice, like elegant concept in that it feels like a, it's like a thing you're adding, but it's a simplification in a way. Mm-hmm. Like you go from this like two phase idea to like, there's just one thing you just render all the time and we re-render whenever things change. And like you're not mucking around with things and thinking about different states. Right. It feels like a, a stand a stand approach to like state management in general. Yeah, I think that you find this in a lot of kind of really durable and successful long- systems over the long term. Hmm. So if you look at like HTTP, for example, one of the the key principles behind REST, it's called like uniform interface in the in Fielding's thesis, mm-hmm. and it basically says that like the way that you create resources, so you do you basically do a put to create something new, and then you do a post to update it. But one of the the key ideas behind that is that you use the same data format for both the creation and the updates. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that, that's obviously scaled like really well for you know the web. And similar principles, I think, um, apply to React in these other systems as well. Mm-hmm. You'll see that in, in other systems and similar properties. Mm-hmm. I think that there is an interesting property of what makes React successful, though. Mm, yeah, and, and this is something that I've been thinking about for a while, and I haven't really been able to really do a great job of explaining it, but I'll try. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there is a spectrum from like concepts to prototype to developing like features, but you haven't launched yet to production to kind of building your next iteration, right? When you're building some sort of software project. Yep. With React, the, what I found is that um, one of the properties of React that makes me really happy as an application developer and a product developer is the transition between all of those states is really smooth hmm. as I'm developing. So what I mean by that is I have my concept and then I sketch it out in like a single big React component. And then when I go to my prototype, I can break that up into to smaller ones. But at no point do I have this big like plateau or drop in productivity where I have to go and throw out a bunch of stuff and re-architect the system. Hmm. Or I have to basically, you know, pause, break all my unit tests, write a bunch more code to get to the next level, and then I, I get up to the next level. Hmm. So I think that this is like one of the reasons why people have a lot of success with React because they can just kind of it scales up and scale and it scales down. And it's it's really important, I think, to think about both of those cases. So you, it's like it starts with a very simple thing that you can kind of layer in additional stuff as you're working. Is that sort of the rough idea there? Yeah, it's a number of things. It's whenever you have this system that's built on like a very simple concept that you can combine to create more complicated concepts. Mm. So like like Scheme, for example, is like the prototypical example of this. Yeah, it scales down to Hello World. And it's like very easy to describe hello world. And then it scales all the way up to like some sort of like bank transaction software, something like, you know, really complicated. Mm -hmm. And I think that the web in particular has not learned a lot, or at least the client side web hasn't learned a lot from CS history and is like reinventing a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And you'll see with these other approaches to doing things on the front end, um, they don't have this property. Mm. So you'll. And that property is like composability, right? Yeah, it's composability, um, but composability is just like thrown around all the time. And like, I don't even know what people mean when they say it anymore. I mean, I know what the word means, but, you know, 
if, if you can have less lines of code and more lines of code, people say it's composable. Like, I, I <laughs> okay. don't even know what that means. Okay. So, so then, what, then what to you is the fundamental property of React that, that makes it that you can sort of start small and build these larger structures? Um, I think that if you had a queue of, of features and you were able to somehow kind of normalize the difficulty of building those features, which is obviously impossible, mm-hmm. your like velocity down that like in kind of completing those features stays constant throughout your entire development life cycle. You know, mm-hmm. whether they're kind of early on early days, really high leverage but low detail features, all the way up to the really fine grained um, mm-hmm. features. And what is it about React that gives that property to you? Um, well, it's, it is composability. So it's the fact that there's, um, one kind of unified interface for me. Just say it. I got, I got you there. I I know. I know you got me. I'm, I'm such a hypocrite over here, but but you've got this one way of building things Mm -hmm. and, um, you can, you know, layer layers of abstraction on top of each other, Mm -hmm. like layers of abstraction, obviously kind of reduce the cognitive load, but also because of these kind of performance heuristics that react has in place, you actually don't get surprising performance either. Hmm. So a really good example is a year ago before anybody thought that React was a good idea, you talk to anybody about building a reactive UI system and they'd say that there was only one way to do it. it this is the only way to do it, which is you have observable values, right? Mm-hmm. And it's and it's just a, a value sitting in memory somewhere and you can read from it and you can be notified when it changes. Mm-hmm. And then you just weave these like giant graphs of like, Oh, this value depends on these two values, and so when one of these values updates, it's going to update all of it, all of its dependencies. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a good idea, right? It keeps your all of your data consistent and synced up. But what you realize is that like, yes, this is like a composable abstraction um, because you can compose other values out of you know other values. Mm-hmm. But the performance complexity um, isn't composable because um, what you find is that your memory usage of this system is actually a function of the number of edges. In, your, in that graph rather than the number of nodes. And so hmm. as you build a feature, yeah, you might be computing only one extra value, but if it depends on a bunch of different other values, which it certainly will, mm-hmm. uh, dare I say that doesn't scale. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of something that like on the surface looks like it composes, but from a performance perspective, it doesn't. And even from like a complexity perspective, a lot of times it doesn't because how do you know when your values are going to be up to date? Like, right. um, you know, if a computation is expensive, that computation might get kicked off at any time. So you need to know when that's going to get kicked off. You need to know how many times it's going to get kicked off, um, what the inputs into it are, what kind of cascading effects will it have throughout the system. And so that's, you know, this other huge amount of stuff you have to load in your head. Totally. And that's sort of the more insidious cost in a way is like understanding it and keeping it loaded correctly. Oh, yeah. It just like yeah. hurts you all the time. And that's where you lose that constant speed of new of velocity, basically. Mm-hmm. Constant velocity of new features. Because it gets to the point where the system becomes more complicated. It's like, I can't, I can't remember what's going on here to build new stuff on top of it. Exactly. And then you, you think about like the times that you felt like the wind kind of fell out of your sails in a project. Mm. They're always like, you look at this code base, and you're just like, this code base sucks. I have to refactor everything because I don't understand it anymore. Yep. Or... Um, what's even worse is you think you understand your code base, and then you push to production, and you realize like, oh, now I need to write just a, I need to stop write a bunch of like unit tests and regression tests and integration tests because I think I understand my system, but I actually don't. Mm-hmm. Or you write a bunch of code, build a bunch of features, and then you're like, you know, damn it, like the performance here is just so bad. Like I need to rethink this. And then sometimes it's an easy fix, but other times it's like, well. We had this one assumption about, you know, the number of times this event was going to occur and we got that wrong. So now we have to refactor like our entire abstraction. Yeah. 
So one thing I've noticed is that uh, it seems like a lot of these uh, new ideas in programming and computer science were written in papers like 40 years ago as rough ideas. Was it React inspired by like previous work that's, that you're aware of? Um, I think it was. I know that the like V0 of React was written in OCaml. I don't know what the OCaml like UI world looks like. Mm-hmm. But I think that he was, Jordan, who was the guy who was originally working on this, was was cribbing some ideas from there. Uh, I know that the people who work on React have a lot of respect for Elm, which mm. is this kind of front-end functional programming language that runs in the browser. Hmm. And, you know, obviously there's there's now like a lot of back and forth between React and the ClojureScript community. Right. As far as what like what specific papers and stuff like that um, he was looking at, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. The way that it was communicated to me was, what is the interface that we want to give our, our application developers? It's this kind of write one render method and let the system figure out the transitions. Mm-hmm. And then everything else fell out of that. One of the things that I've seen sort of listed as a nice benefit of this of React is that you can sort of start small. Like you can just sort of say, I'm, this little corner of the page is going to be its own component. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's how, how Facebook certainly used it um, yeah. in the beginning. I think that technologies that don't think about like working with legacy systems just like aren't even worth really thinking about. Right. Because... Like for those of us that live in the real world, like we start a meaningful greenfield project, what a couple times in our careers, right? So those technologies, I'm not really, I don't really think about so much. So yes, React absolutely has to work, kind of both in the small and in the large. Mm-hmm. And then this gets into just like the totally banal debate about like frameworks versus libraries, which is just like if you frequent any JavaScript kind of community, like message boards or whatever, you just your mind will just go numb reading <laughs> these debates. Uh huh. So they'll t- you'll talk about systems like Ember or Angular or the, the other contemporary JavaScript frameworks or libraries or whatever. And people will say, oh, no, they like take over the page or they're not modular or, or whatever. And then they'll counter by saying, no, look, here, here I am rendering into like a single DOM node. And like that, that's not taking over the whole page. And then they'll counter with, yeah, but it's not really designed that way or it doesn't, it feels too heavy or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's like a really not nuanced debate at all. But what I think that a lot of those people are trying to get at is that it does feel heavy. It does feel like it has to take over your entire application. And and this isn't React. This is like kind of competing approaches. Mm -hmm. And why does it feel that way? Well, taking kind of Ember as an example here, and it's not really Ember. It's the idea of these um, observable values that kind of trigger these callbacks that I had mentioned earlier. It turns out once you start using these observable values in one place, you have to use them everywhere because otherwise you're not going to get notified of changes. So you can't have one part of your program have these observable values. Then one part that doesn't understand your particular flavor of observables, like a third-party library, for example, that doesn't mm-hmm. understand that you have to use the you know, .get and .set or, or subscribe to the change or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you can't integrate with, an, with another system. So it feels like it takes over your whole app because the abstraction isn't composable in the sense that it infects your entire application. Mm-hmm. So like, yes, you know, you have these well-defined interfaces that like kind of abstract away a lot of your application, but the types that those interfaces take and the semantics that are required for those parameters that you pass in require you to use this other abstraction throughout your entire code base. And Rich uh, Hickey, I think, calls that complecting. Right, yeah. Where, you know, you've got like, your regular application concerns, then you like weave this extra little observable concern inside of your program. Mm-hmm. So Rich has a talk called Simple Made Easy, where he talks about simple versus uh, easy and complexing and all this stuff, which is an awesome talk if you haven't watched it before. Yeah, yeah, I've checked that out. It's really great. Yeah. Uh, so the metaphorical you of the listener, you should in- investigate this talk. It's, it's a great one. 
Yeah. Uh, so you touched on this earlier that you're starting a business venture. Is this your first time doing that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I went to Facebook right out of grad school. So you're, you're being thrown into the entrepreneurial uh, crucible. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty fun so far. Everybody's really helpful, actually. Mm-hmm. And you're an SF, right? Yeah, I'm an SF. But, you know, I, I don't only talk to Bay Area people. I've, I've been kind of making phone calls and emails to everybody I know. Yeah. And there's this sense of, you know, these people went through the, the crucible before and now they're, they're kind of paying it forward. And the, the expectation is like, yeah, we'll, we'll help you out, give you advice. Um, but you have to do it when, you know, when you actually know what you're talking about. Yep. It seems like all the best things are like that. There's this sense of, yeah, yeah you, should, you should mentor the new people in this whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's how I kind of got into to programming, too. Mm-hmm. My dad introduced me to this MIT grad student um, when I was a kid, and he kind of showed me the ropes with, with Scheme and, and C++. Nice. Two different sides of, very different sides of the coin. Um, and then the expectation was, like, when I knew I was, what I was doing in the industry, I would have to come back and, like, you know, teach some kids how to do this. Yeah. So, Having sort of made a similar transition to what you're doing now of like going from purely technical person to technical plus business person, it's, a, it's an interesting transition. It's like there's, there's a lot of things about running a business that don't depend on your technical chops anymore. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. I mean, once you shift your mind into thinking about like creating value rather than creating like technology, mm-hmm. like you get kind of bummed out because you're not writing nearly as much code as you thought you would when you had full, like your entire day to work on this thing. Right. But at the same time, you have one lunch meeting that requires an hour each way on, on public transit or whatever. But at the end of that meeting, you're less like, wow, I just like created and accelerated this venture by like, you know, way more than the you know, amount of code that I would have written. Right, exactly. You realize you have like the levers you have are maybe not as fun as your old levers, but they might be larger. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And also, if you're working at a bigger company like, like Facebook, you can take for granted that the, the customers are there and we kind of know what they want. And so it's really about how do we build this thing well? How do we build it quickly? Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, it's much more important now to, to figure out like, you know, what are we building? Like, what do people even want? Right. Um, and it's a very different transition. And I think it's like, definitely not for everyone. I think I like it so far, but you know, I'm still very early in this process. So yeah, well, good luck on this new challenge. Thanks. Do you have, have any like cool Facebook slash Instagram stories or like crazy numbers or interesting things that happen? Man, my my best bug is mm. is I think like a pretty decent story. Sounds good. Uh, so I was on the Facebook Photos team for a while, and we we had this redesign of one of our user interfaces, and we A/B test everything. And so we worked on this thing for a while, and we A/B tested it, and it would always like test poorly with photo uploads. And we we had this like button, you know, people click the button, the file picker pops up, and you pick your JPEGs and it uploads them. And we were kind of sitting there, and we we're just like banging our heads against the wall for a month like why is this going down hmm. so this, this new thing you put out there it suddenly showed a drop in usage basically yeah and it was like a non-trivial drop mm-hmm. in photo uploads which is an important metric so we tried like moving the button around making it different colors adding like 10 of them to the page and like none of that stuff worked um, not that we would have shipped that anyway but we're just trying to, to figure out like is it a design problem or a bug and it got to the point where we were able to reproduce it where if we clicked the upload photos button before all the JavaScript on the page loaded, mm-hmm. it would destroy that file picker, like in the middle of picking the files. Mm. And we're just like, why is this going on? And, and oh yeah, by the way, the file picker uses Flash. 
Uh, okay. So the reason for that is um, it's a multi-file picker, and, and we use Flash to resize the JPEGs and encode them. And it was at the time Flash was the best platform for it. Yep. So we couldn't figure this out. I like built a custom build of Firefox and like traced through like every single like part of the code path where it would have like you know opened this file picker, and I just I couldn't figure this out. Hmm. So fortunately, my engineering manager was like former um, Adobe Flex engineering yep. manager. So he put us in touch with the, the people at Adobe and we took a little field trip down to San Jose. <laughs> and we jury rigged this thing that was probably, you know, not considered a security best practice where the Adobe engineers hooked up, you know, their debug build of Xcode to, and they were, we set it up so they could hit like our internal sandbox and mm-hmm. our development environment. Mm-hmm. And so they could actually put a breakpoint in the, the code that would like destroy the VM. So, wow. In the C++ code. So finally, we discovered that like we had this JavaScript, you, you know, Swift object. It's how you detect the Flash Player version in JavaScript. Okay. Well, basically, it adds an object tag to your page, reads the Flash version out of that VM, and then it deletes the object tag. It turns out, and I think that this is still the case, when you remove a Flash VM from the page, it restarts all the Flash VMs on the page. Huh. So what would happen is people would like be picking their thing and then this flash version detector would go off right. and then um, it would destroy the, the file picker. So it was like the fact that we had to like take a field trip to the vendor and like actually hook it up to their like debug symbols kind of blew my mind. Right. It's also kind of mind blowing that you could do that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like it's nice to have that network. Yeah. And it was kind of like a, a validation of the whole like Bay Area technology thing. It's like, oh, Flash is broken. Like drive down the street. And like, right. I know the guy who can fix this. Yeah. Synergy. Yeah. Yeah. Enterprise Synergy. Leveraging synergistic resources. Right? <laughs> I hope that's the name of your new company. Synergistic resources. Oh, my God. Kill me Put now. Put leveraging in there, too. <laughs> leveraging synergistic resources. Boom. LSR. Yeah. Awesome. It, it seems like a label of a of a graph that goes up into the right in a pitch deck or something oh, for sure for sure synergistic resources leveraged over time <laughs> i hope that description just blew somebody's mind as they now like realize what the bug is that's been like frustrating them for months oh yeah yeah I, I i'd like to share that too because i'm sure that other people have this problem did you blog about this anywhere uh no i was just like so you're a bad happy person to be done with it no well i should have <laughs> but like i was just so ready to move on with my life yeah Okay, well, well, we'll count this as your as doing your due diligence uh, publicity work. Nice, yeah, I'll, I'll tweet it out or something. Yeah, and if yep. if you've been frustrated about this for a while, then you can come blame Pete. Yeah, awesome. Well, I think that's a really good place to stop. Cool, awesome. Thanks very much for being on. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for talking to me. Hey, everybody. Uh, one quick note I wanted to mention uh, before we sign off. Uh, I am actually going to be going on a bit of a walkabout slash sabbatical slash adventure for a handful of months. Uh, I'm going to go out and explore the world and program with interesting people and uh, try to do fun stuff. So we're going to be changing things a little bit up here. We are going to move to a rotating host schedule. So while I'm gone, I'm going to try to record the occasional podcast with the interesting people I meet. And so we will air those as we have them. But since I don't know what my schedule will be, we will be filling in the other weeks with a rotating set of hosts. You might hear from Chad. You'll like, almost definitely hear from other ThoughtBotters here who will continue to interview interesting guests and give you that sweet, sweet content that you like in your earbuds. Um, if you have some awesome ideas for places I should go or things I should do or people I should meet, please get in touch. I'll be on Twitter and reachable through normal means mostly. And uh, I should be back in the normal podcasting seat sometime early next year. And then I will uh, start seeing you every week again. Until then, uh, stay well and good and happy and healthy, and I'll see you on the other side. Thanks. 
Today's show was produced and edited by Tom Mobarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giantrobots slash 119. Thanks for listening. 